0: Hello from ABA Midyear Meeting 2018 in Vancouver, Canada. I'm Lawrence Coletti, Kyle McIntyre,
1: Rachel Van Cleve,
0: CJ Ryan, and we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. <laughs> and we're back it's so our last interview for today's coverage, continuing coverage, but we're going to be talking a lot about what's going on at law schools today. I have the presenters and uh, a guest who was uh, sitting in the uh, presentation today. The name of the presentation the session was called The Perennial and Stubborn Challenge of Cost, Affordability and Access in Legal Education. Has it finally hit the fan? So let me do a brief round of introductions here in terms of bio. So Kyle, let's start with you. Where do you work? What do you do?
2: Sure. I'm the executive director of Law School Transparency. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we are engaged in legal education policy.
0: So how'd you end up in the session? I I understand there was uh, Joe Patrice uh, from Above the Law talked with you and uh, directed you. Hey, you may want to check that out.
2: (laughs) He did. That, That was Joe's doing.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Joe. That's a little shout out for one of our hosts there. He hosts a show called Think Like a Lawyer. Obviously, uh, Joe uh, works for Above the Law, one of our favorites. All of our hosts are our favorites, just so you know, in case there was anybody was wondering. All right, Rachel, how about yourself? Where do you work? What do you do?
1: So I'm a professor at Golden Gate University School of Law and most recently served as Dean of the Law School for five years.
0: Is that California Golden Gate?
1: San Francisco. San Francisco.
0: Yep. Excellent. I'm uh, from Southern California. So hello from sorry. San Diego. <laughs> I don't know if I feel sorry that I'm in San Diego, but... Uh, that's all right. That's all right.
3: All right, CJ, how about yourself? I uh, am a doctoral fellow at the American Bar Foundation and a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt University. Okay, great. So we've got
0: a lot of questions here, but I think we should start with probably one of the most looming, I'm using the word looming on purpose. Let's talk about debt. Who wants to open up? Everyone's reluctant. I can't well, imagine obviously, why.
1: I mean, certainly it's a, it's a huge problem. Law school tuition has been going up, although I think there's been more attempts recently to come up with alternatives, not a lot yet, but, and keep it down, but it comes from, uh, one issue is related to admissions. I mean, it's hard to pull apart any one of the, any one of these topics where law school applications, to law school dropped dramatically after 2010, after a big spike in applications. And, um, That has an impact on law schools and they're trying to figure it out how to get students but also how to have tuition revenue how to how to make sure that the graduates aren't graduating with um too much debt that can be uh, addressed with their employment after law school
0: you know i wonder if the actual cost of education has gone up because now my observation and granted i'm not an expert i haven't seen all of the, the the data underlying this but my observations you know talking to some of my friends that came out years later is that despite a recession you know, And despite job opportunities kind of going south, especially during the recession, the, the march north of tuition rates continued to climb. And so I can't imagine that the rate of the cost it takes to educate people went up as much as the tuition rates were going up. So I wonder what Kyle might think about that.
2: Sure. When you look at the cost of legal education, you're looking at an aggregation of choices made by a variety of stakeholders, whether they are at the university level and the provost and what they dictate to the dean as to what the priority should be. And then you have choices made by the faculty about and and the dean as well about how to allocate the limited financial resources that they have. Um, and so, you know, I think that's important to keep in mind of, of the limited power of any individual actor within a school. And you end up with kind of a creep in the cost because maybe not all the hands are talking to each other or mouths are talking to each other. And I think that likely contributes to the problem, although I'd be curious to hear Rachel's perspective on that as a former dean of a law school.
1: Yeah, so actually setting tuition and um, working on the budget is a collaborative effort at Golden Gate and working with the university and the CFO and really talking through a lot of issues about, I mean, one concern for me while I was dean was while I recognized that some modest increases might be necessary, I very much wanted to keep it as low as possible. And that, again, worked into other areas. How do we start to reduce our costs? Um, And that resulted in a lot of collaboration, again, with the university in what are some of the services that we're providing students, maybe either back offices or library services or other types of services that we can um, collaborate and combine with the university to reduce costs overall. Because for just the law school to reduce our costs doesn't necessarily address overhead that the university might have. So how can we reduce costs together overall?
0: Well, you know, I've got a background in business and one of the things, uh, the two primary drivers of overhead, I, I'm first and foremost, the most expensive for your employees, generally speaking. And then the next is uh, your physical plant.
1: Physical plant. And speak. so
0: those are the two big ones. And so I just, in terms of that, you know, uh, as Dean, obviously you're looking at the expense sheets, you know, what are the big drivers within those two units that uh, I think commonplace amongst many uh, law school institutions, you know, what's driving it these last 10, 15 years?
1: Mm-hmm. So what I was focused on was as we were becoming a smaller law school in terms of numbers of students, we need to become a smaller law school. We need to scale that, right? So that really involved talking to faculty about this is what the job is now. Might not have been the same as when you started 20 or 30 years ago, but this is what it's now. And you know, having some very direct and candid conversations about that, and that led some people um, to opt for some modest incentives and to retire. And, you know, in terms of the physical plant, some of the details there, I didn't always know from the CFO, but a lot of fixed costs involved in that. But we did move out of one of the two university buildings um, so that we could then rent it out um, as a way to reduce costs and bring in some income.
2: I think one thing that's worth pointing out is that unlike a, a traditional business, a law school's human capital is largely tenured. And so it's much more difficult to remove them. So that's why you need those incentives. Because unless you can declare financial exigency or you close the school down, they're very difficult to get rid of. And that makes it very challenging for law schools to cut the cost of legal education.
0: Well, before we bring CJ into it, cause I, I feel bad he's uh, hanging out there all by himself. I just wanted a little follow up with the Dean. So just, you know, within your circle of deans and, and, and some of the other educators, is there talk about review of the tenure process? Because, you know, in business, you know, you don't have enough coming in the door, you have to make layoffs. And I understand that's more difficult when you're talking about professors, but you know, it's law schools like many things, it's a business as well There's a business component of it. Are mm-hmm. law schools beginning to re-examine the, the tenured proposition for everyone?
1: So certainly that, that was an issue that came up even with the ABA in terms of ABA standards and security position as i'm sure you can imagine a lot of law school faculty not happy to open up that discussion and i think you know i don't have like all of the data but anecdotally i think that it's looking very carefully at every position and what do we need to get out of that position is this something that justifies a tenure track position should this be a long term contract should this be a short term contract really examining any position that we hire for when we are in a position to hire What do we need to get out of it, and what's the best match in terms of what type of position it should be?
3: Moreover, I I believe that um, a driver of the cost has been um, the fact that many of of these law schools that we're talking about are affiliated with parent institutions, universities. And these universities, uh, a, a significant number of them, are state universities. Well, state universities' budgets have declined because of the the, the reality that state legislatures' uh, appropriations have declined over the same period of time. It has a, a domino effect.
0: I realize it's a tough question to answer. Uh, you know, it's, it, there's, there's probably not one perfect solution for any one university, but uh, this question is for anybody. You know, I, I still see the rates for tuition rates climbing up. And even with uh, schools that have quite an endowment, you know, the tuition rates continue to increase. And I know financially, eventually going to hit a point The salaries aren't growing to that same degree. You're going to hit the wall and return on investment for education is going to drop and it'll be a precipitous decline of new law school applicants. And so
2: are we there? Are we at that point? Let let me provide some statistical context here that I think might be valuable. So we can look at net uh, sticker tuition and see that that has gone up every year on average since probably forever, right? Even in recent times where schools are under pressure to enroll people, they've By and large, not cut their sticker price, but they are cutting their average price paid or their net tuition. And we've seen the net tuition drop by about a percent or two each year for the last few years. And so that's an important factor to consider when analyzing the cost of legal education that it is to some extent coming down. But it's a question of who is it coming down for? Because the percentage borrowing. As has actually declined in recent years, despite the cost being so high, which begs the question as to who are we enrolling? Um, and it seems that we might be enrolling a wealthier cohort of individuals, which is not good for a profession um, like ours.
3: Any follow-ups on that? Well, at present, the, the data do show, uh, I believe, what, what Kyle is saying, at least in the descriptive sense, about the reality of an increasing broad dollar amount of the sticker price, but in fact, uh, a greater discount rate to students. However, it's very difficult from the data that is available that's publicly available to analyze the question that Kyle brings up on the back end of that. And that is for whom is, is it declining? Um, the ABA aggregates this data at the institution level. So that student level response that would answer this very question is not something that we can get from the data available. So I wonder
0: if there's some technology solutions in here that can play a part. You know, technology in the early days of the industrialization, you know, the, the, the per, I guess the the per unit cost of labor went down because you had machines doing the work. And today we deploy our computers to do a lot of our analytical, or not our analytical, but some of our calculation work, run factories, uh, automate. You see the, the advent of artificial intelligence being plugged into many of the services that we use today. And I'm just wondering, you know, and this is a question for everybody, how can that possibly play a role in bringing down these costs? Maybe to a point where you really start to see a drop, a, a meaningful drop in the cost of tuition.
1: So you mean in terms of like online education or using technology for the education piece or for the actual providing legal yeah, I mean, there, representation? Or?
0: There's there's great communication mediums out there. You know, people, instead of flying, they use Skype or they use Google Hangouts. Uh, there's like Zoom, you know, big conference Uh, You know, I've seen uh, kind of an advent of online education as well. Uh, My sister did a remote MBA uh, where she did that completely away from a campus. So there you go. You remove the plant aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Those online components are very scalable. So you actually, you know, you could see uh, a decrease in personnel as well. You know, the two primary driving costs of just about any business. So I'm just wondering if there's been some discussions within the academic setting to deploy some of those technologies to do exactly that.
1: So I think there's been lots of discussion about online education. And as you know, the ABA has some credit hour limits and and how much can be provided. And I think there's a lot of discussion about how uh, effective it can be. Certainly, um, my understanding of it is it certainly would require a high level of discipline, individual discipline to stay on top of something that, you know, you just at home in your PJs, flip open your laptop and you know from the perspective of a faculty member yeah maybe you could have more students because they're all over the place the country the world but i think some of the things that faculty members do in terms of assessment and grading and certainly there's a lot more focus on assessment of student learning grading 50 papers versus grading 100 papers is is more work
2: and that rolls Um, into the question of why it's hitting the fan now which is while schools were enrolling and continue to enroll too many students. And it might be an option for one school to expand their access to on, online education and increase their enrollment, but are there jobs at the end of the tunnel? And, you know, if legal education continues to cost as much of it do, as it does, that's a big problem. Now, if we can get the cost down to three or $4,000 per year for everyone, then I'm completely okay with enrolling as many people as you want and just doing it so for the education. So where are you
1: concluding that law schools are enrolling too many people? What, what's your point? Sure. That? So
2: over the last 25 years, there have been between 27 and 30,000 full-time legal jobs on the entry level market. And that number has stayed pretty steady. And, but it has actually been declining every year since 2013 to below 24,000. And last year, uh, law schools enroll just over 37,000 people. And they will lose some of those through forced attrition, voluntary attrition, but not enough to make up for that percentage. Uh, and so there are still substantially more people going to law school than there will be a legal job at the end of the tunnel. And that what, said, what's
1: your definition of a legal job? Because I would say as with, I'm sure you know, not everybody goes into a large law firm.
2: Sure, I would not I would not use the category of large law firm as that determiner, determinant. Mm-hmm. Um, the the figures I just cited are full time legal jobs, meaning a job that requires a law license.
1: And you're getting that
3: from where?
2: Uh, that is a combination of NALP data going oh. back to 1985 and more recently ABA data. And in fact, the ABA data does
3: include a category for JD advantage jobs. So if we look, if we expand the category there, there would be enough, uh, I, in my view. Uh, of a market for um, recent law grads to have an avenue to, to employability where they're using their JD.
2: Somewhat I think that's true, but now data tell us that people who are in JD Advantage jobs are three times more likely to be searching for another job despite having that job, and that's at 10 months out uh, after graduation. I think it's 42% of all people in JD Advantage jobs are still seeking a job, whereas it's, I think, 11 or 12% last year. And to me, that's a pretty striking piece of data, right? It, it tells us that those are not the jobs that those people want, right? Now, into the future, over the next 10, 20 years, are we going to see the profession change even more? Absolutely. Are the nature of the jobs people have in and around the profession going to change? Yes. But we're not there yet. And a lot of those jobs are not great jobs. And I think the data bears that out. Why don't we change the
0: subject to something more happy like bar passage? Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, I, I recently I've noticed that uh, some of the, uh, the, the pass rates for, for some of the different bars have declined. And, you know, obviously people are getting concerned because, you know, legal education hasn't changed that much in, in this period of time. And yet, students are having a hard time upon graduation passing that bar. And of course, that is a major block to getting a job. Nobody wants to hire you as a lawyer if you can't be licensed in your state. So, I just wanted to open this up. What are the contributing factors to a relative decline in the bar passage rates uh, across the country?
1: So, I think that there are so many factors that go into it. And, uh, you know, one narrative that some people would like us to believe is that our students just aren't as good as they were. I don't believe that. And, of course, when we're looking at bar pass, and obviously we want our graduates to pass the bar on the first time, California, I've known many people throughout my career who haven't passed the california bar exam on the first time but that's the data point that we all use i think that there are multiple factors in-
3: it's absolutely a multifactorial issue sure. and, and there's it, there's no single input that is determinative of why bar passage rates uh, have exhibited the trends they have over let's say the last you know 10 years but the reality is bar passage is is not something that is necessarily influenced by law schools. It, it, it's often controlled by state bar examiners. And so um, any changes to this problem, to, to address this problem, have to include the profession and, and the state state bar examiners.
0: I think there's a big divide over what's taught in school versus what's tested on the bar, and another divide in actually what you do in practice. And I just think the disconnect, I, for example, Colorado is one of the states where you had uh, two two fact patterns. They've they changed this, but two fact patterns on the exam. You had an NBA fact pattern. So it was kind of the, the same fact pattern that everybody was seeing on the on the, uh, multi-state bar examination day. They also had a Colorado-specific fact pattern. So now you have to learn two different fact patterns for the same area of law. So you have two different standards for criminal law. Now, now why do you have to learn two? You know, one applies in Colorado and one does not. And so now you have to learn this fake bar pattern, this fake pattern that you're never going to apply. You have to memorize it and regurgitate it under, you know, excruciatingly short timelines. And then you're going to do all that, but that's not really what practice is about either. <laughs> so you get out from that bar exam, uh, if you pass it and your practice life looks a lot different. So I don't know, I kind of turned back. Uh, my, my dad's a, a orthodontist. He went to a dental school and went to orthodontic. My mom's a nurse. And these are very practical professions. They teach you how to practice and teach you, your, you know, your trade while you're in school. And I, I do feel like sometimes the, the law school aspect of it kind of misses that practice component of it. I know schools are trying to get at that from some clinics. Those are just some of my thoughts and I just wanted to, to kind of hand that around for a group
2: discussion. Well, I think legal education has never been better and I don't think it's even close. Uh, I graduated in 2011 and I think the legal education I would have, I would receive today is vastly different than the one I received. And so I think schools are making monumental efforts on this front and that most of the profession is just behind the times on the quality of legal education. And I don't think it's at all related to the bar exam, bar passage rates. Uh, as Rachel was referring to, there are people who believe that it does have to do with the quality of student that are being admitted. And I am one of the principal advocates of that worldview. Uh, it's not to say that the LSAT in particular is the end all be all, but it is the best predictive tool we have before law school as to someone's likelihood of completing school or passing the bar exam. And we've seen these indicators drop. Uh, We've seen GPAs not mitigate those lower LSATs. And accordingly, we've seen our passage rates plummet. And I do think it has to do with the choices law schools are making in the face of financial pressure. They're saying, we are tuition driven. We need those bodies. And as a result, we're going to start taking more chances
0: I think California's a good example that there's a lot of schools that are non-ABA accredited that they're, they're
2: training students to take the bar exam. But, but that, their bar passage rates are almost never above thirty percent.
0: But is that how does that compare to the ones that went to ABA accredited schools walking into an exam that they're not not as prepared for? They haven't had as much time to prepare for. Are they doing better than the ABA accredited schools for that? Or no, they're no? not. No. Kyle, you were saying, you know, there's there's been more admittance of students into law school and so you know, more students are gonna get what you get, I guess, you know, there's gonna be some people that flock to the law, they're very talented at it. I don't think I was necessarily a very gifted student. I had friends that could just, they had these unbelievable memories, could remember everything, did fantastic in school, doing a whole lot less work than I was doing. And so I'm just kind of wondering, is part of that just with the larger body of students, you know, maybe the people that are naturally gifted, there's less of them. And so you take that whole body and you have kind of less of the naturally gifted people in that mix, and That's bringing down the overall scores. Are part of that maybe going on, or with greater numbers?
3: I think it's really hard to say, especially for the let's say the top 25 law schools, that the quality of the students that they're admitting has has declined. Um, I think on average we see we see maybe you know a trend emerging there, but um, I, I think it's really hard to paint. The whole population of law schools was such a broad brush because sure the the reality is it it, what is happening at a state public flagship may not be happening at a private elite may not be happening at a public regional and so it's it's very difficult to to speak in sort of broad strokes about these trends
0: and the reason i asked that is because you know during the recession obviously the desire to go to law school was down you had admissions going down so what i heard was a lot of schools were kind of lowering their admission scores and so now you're beginning to attract people that maybe could not have gotten in before maybe It has nothing to do with raw intelligence of the individual. Just how do you respond to these standardized tests? And so now you've got people that may not respond to a standardized test coming through the law school. And I'm wondering, is that kind of back to your point there, CJ?
3: Yeah, well, Barry Courier referenced this in our panel that uh, very often admissions is driven by a grid. It's driven by GPA and LSAT with, with almost equal weight. Um, so, I, I, I don't know that uh, that grid has really shifted over time. If you look at even you know the, the schools that operate on that grid, I, I don't know that it's really changed that, that drastically over time.
1: And I would just want to point out that even though perhaps the LSAT is the best indicator actually before somebody goes to law school, um, I think what's even a little bit strong, it's, it's not that great, first of all. It's, it
2: is statistically significant though
1: it's still not that great. And it's only intended to predict first year performance. But even so, I'm not sure, I mean, you know, it's one thing to look at the aggregate numbers, but when we've looked at um, our students at Golden Gate and we look at numbers of pretty darn close, if not exactly the same numbers of admitted students, GPA and LSAT, and if we had taken them out, our bar pass rate, the percentage would not have changed because half of them passed the bar on the first time and half of them did not. When we go back to look and see, was there anything in their file that would have helped us figure out who were those who were gonna pass on the first time and who were not? Not really. So I think on the one hand, there is something in the aggregate numbers, but it also misses what individuals may or may not be capable of in spite of perhaps lower
2: numbers. Can I ask you a question then, based on your particular experience at the school? So in 2012, the bar passage rate at golden gate was 68 percent first time and in 2015 it was under 40 percent i think 39.6 percent so if it's not the lower credentials that explain that and the california um, california did not change their cut score or their exam in that period of time what is it that explains such a dramatic drop if it's not the entering credentials
1: so I think that there are lots of... That. At Golden Gate, we had recently reformed the curriculum. And when you make changes to the curriculum, sometimes it takes a while to work out the kinks. We added more credits to legal research and writing. We added experiential learning in the first year. We added um, experiential learning requirements before the ABA did. And so we made pretty significant changes, we took out, which meant we took out some credits for certain courses in the first year, moved them into upper division So I think in part, it's what happens when those in working through those changes and figuring out how you need to make adjustments along the way. So for us, I think that perhaps it was particular to what was going on. There's also some things that were going on with actual preparing for the bar where there was more online opportunity. Uh, And some of that meant that students could sit at home and watch the same thing that they would have watched if they'd gone into a classroom and could speed it up you know, or had to just be super disciplined. And so while online seems very attractive, what we've seen is that not all of our students are prepared to make the most of that experience. We're working on that. We partnered with a different bar review company that breaks up the online and actually asks them questions over the course of it to kind of keep them engaged. And also how we talk to students about preparing for the exam. And you're right, first time went down, but those students catch up.
0: So, Rachel, as an educator, uh, I was always curious about this. I, I don't know data one way or the other on this. How involved are law schools with the bar examiners in any given state?
1: I think it varies a lot from state to state, where in some states, like in New York, when they make changes, Uh, the chief justice calls all the law school deans together and they talk about it. Um, That's not what happened in California, at least with some of the more recent changes, um, going from a three-day to a two-day and talking about changing the cut score. It varies dramatically, I think, from state to state.
0: I'm not unique to complain about this, but I'm going to complain. The hardest part for me was the time factor, the time crunch. So I felt like, uh, especially with the MBE, and I'm just not a terribly quick reader, and that was a big struggle for me. I felt like I was gearing up to read something and regurgitate it super fast as opposed to being tested on what I actually knew. But when you get me in an essay environment, I'm being tested on what I know. And I feel like lawyers, I think the, the value add is, like, do they have the requisite knowledge to practice law, not how fast they are. In fact, you know I think most model rules around the country say, hey, you got to budget your time. You can't overload your schedule. You're not supposed to be rushing from here to there. You're supposed to plan your day accordingly. And that's what the model rules expect. That's what uh, you know the ethical rules in each state uh, so I'm just kicking that back to you, uh, Rachel, as an educator. You know, you guys come up with tests to try to measure the relevant requisite knowledge for each of the courses, for each of the subjects. You know, how, how do you think that plays out with the bar exam just around the country as it's given generally?
1: On the one hand, we want to do things in law school that will help our graduates prepare for the bar exam. On the other hand, we have a lot more to do right. than prepare them for the bar exam. So we actually ask faculty to have at least one of their essays be modeled on that on um, what a typical bar exam essay, I often use them in class just to review um, the material and say, this was on the California bar last summer. How would you start? What would you do? And I think that when I hated multiple, I dreaded the multiple choice <laughs> part of the exam. And I committed to doing 15 every morning, all summer long with my brilliant roommate who never seemed to study <laughs> um, always one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you jet by, you know, that amount of familiarity and review. It wasn't that I learned more about subject matters necessarily, but I could see patterns. You start to see patterns and how they ask questions, how they frame answer choices. And so, you know, I think those are the types of things trying to communicate with students it's looking for these patterns. And this is just. This isn't necessarily what being a lawyer is, but right now, this is the requirement. So control what you can control, and that's how you prepare for it. And don't worry about the rest of the noise right now.
0: Terrific. So I, I want to get CJ's thoughts, and I want to get Kyle's thoughts. Uh, we're a little short on time, so I just want you guys to follow up on um, what uh, Rachel said there. And then I'd like to give you an opportunity just to kind of have final thoughts before we close it out. So CJ, let's, uh, let's start with you.
3: So I would add to that that um, the timed environment on the bar exam is, is artificial. Uh, in the real world, you would have, you know, not unlimited, but, but some greater amount of time to address your clients' concerns. However, it prepares you, in a sense, for having to work on a fixed time frame. We all work on deadlines. We all have to, to sort of abide by constraints. And so while imperfect, um, there is value in there, just, just as the Socratic method has value. I believe that that trains you for colloquy with a judge. Uh, it, it seems sort of daunting to, to the 1L, but there's there's something that comes out of it that's, that's worthwhile.
0: I'm going to fire right back at you, CJ. In terms of, of uh, analyzing the qualifications of someone to practice law in a given state, is that speed, that kind of compression of time, a necessary standard for everybody to achieve that's going to be a successful, competent attorney?
3: Well, it's, it's hard to take up that mantle uh, as the sort of end all and be all of what it means to be a lawyer, that you can do something in a timed frame. But the reality is that every standardized test uh, as, a, as a test of a measure of someone's competency is done in a timed environment. I can't think of another, uh, I, can't, I really can't think of any other area that doesn't do this. So um, it, it's very difficult to conceive of a way in which a bar exam could measure that over a course of two days uh, without being in time. You can
0: management. drop the amount of questions. What's it hundred? Maybe you could go to seventy-five m- and give people a little more time.
3: Yeah, sure, sure.
0: I know I'm being a pill. I'm sorry, but I just wanted to. I just I'm trying to flush out these, trying to flush out these issues. Also, I'm trying to have a little fun at the end of the day too. So let's uh, let's
2: get Kyle's opinions. Yeah, well, I think there's three kind of issues that we've talked about that are getting conflated a bit. So we've got on the one hand, we've got the falling bar passage rates, right, and what that has to do with whether it's self-inflicted by schools, whether it's changes by the bar exam administrators, or if it's following credentials, whatever that is, that's a problem that we need to address as a profession when legal education costs as much of it as it does. On top of that, we have cut scores that are too high in some states. California is the best example. It is completely unreasonable where the cut score is set currently. That said, as you said earlier, it is essential to pass the bar exam to practice law. And so we have to, to use the golf analogy, play it as it lies. And All that is not to say that the exam is the right exam, which is just a separate question. And making sure that it's validated for the purposes of what it actually means to practice law in a competent fashion and an ethical fashion, that's a completely different set of questions and I don't think related to what's problematic in terms of why things are hating the fan. That said, it's still an important goal to fix the bar exam to make it so it's a better guard to the profession. So it actually is doing its consumer protection function.
0: All right, final thoughts. I'm going to turn it back to CJ. I actually want to give Rachel the last final word on the, uh, on the podcast today. So let's start with CJ, just final words based on what we discussed today.
3: Well, uh, legal education is, is confronting realities that, frankly, it hasn't ever faced uh, in, in any other time. And I believe it's doing so in ways that are inventive, in ways that, that are going to move forward the profession into the 21st century. Uh, We previewed in our panel today several of the natural experiments that are taking place. And as Kyle said earlier, legal education really is um, in fine form uh, as it stands today. And I look forward to to joining the academy and being a part of it in, in years to come.
2: Kyle. So the legal profession is essential to a functioning democracy. And when legal education is weak, it threatens the profession, which threatens the rule of law. So I think it's incumbent that we solve these problems as quickly as possible. Uh, And that means creating a pipeline from before law school through the end of the profession that actually can reflect what our society looks like from a diversity perspective. So we do a terrible job with that as a profession, but it also means being able to attract people who can afford and want to attend. And it fundamentally comes down to the cost of education. And until we get that under control, we're gonna still have all these problems to deal with. And Rachel?
1: So I would like to just add one piece before I sum up, and that is uh, many students coming to law school are coming with undergrad debt. And it's not as if we're the only institution of higher education that hasn't figured out how to minimize that is true. tuition. So um, let's put it in the broader, broader context. What I would, would like to add is, I, I agree that we need to all be working together. I feel like a lot of what has happened, especially with the initial decline in enrollment and the Great Recession, was a whole lot of finger pointing. Different institutions, the profession, a lot of law schools, a lot of finger pointing. And uh, I think. We're starting to move past that. I'm not sure we're completely past it, but I think until we start to come together and really think about what are the creative solutions, I completely agree that it is critical to our democratic society. Lawyers are builders. They're the ones that we rely on. And whether they're working in a corporate law firm or working as a public defender or working in the legislature drafting laws, lawyers are builders. And so the more we can work together and try to figure this out, um, I think the better, and I remain committed to the experience of our students. I mean, that was my key mantra during my tenure as dean: was how are we supporting our students? How can we do better? And this is this is the job now. These are the students now. So, what do we need to do?
0: I want to say thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation, especially at the end of the day. Really interesting. Uh, really enlightening. Learned a lot. And uh, you know, I think it's a lot of different perspectives. A lot of different. I agree with you. Rachel, I think we get a lot of different heads in there. Eventually, I think we'll start getting the results that we desire. So just want to close it out uh, with some contact information. I think we'll go back to CJ. If our listeners want to follow up, how can they reach you?
3: They can reach me at cryan at abfn.org.
2: And Kyle? Uh, You can reach me at kyle at lawschooltransparency.com. And Rachel?
1: cleve at ggu.edu.
2: All
0: right. Well, we've reached the end of the road for this episode, but I want to thank our guests for joining us and also our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts. See you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit legaltalknetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes.